0: Welcome to Song and Plants. My name is Carmen Porter. In this episode, I was joined by Dr. Rob Myers to discuss all things amaranth. His work and research have been seeding the resurgence of this ancient, adaptable, nutritious grain plant. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to Song and Plants. Would you mind introducing yourself?
1: Yes, I'm Dr. Rob Myers. I'm a professor of plant science at the University of Missouri and direct the Center for Regenerative Agriculture here.
0: Very cool. What got you interested in amaranth?
1: Well, when I was working on my PhD at the University of Minnesota uh, quite a number of years ago, over 30 years ago, there was a farmer who was growing grain amaranth in southern Minnesota, and I was invited to go out to a field tour he was having of this field of amaranth. He was one of the first kind of modern farmers in the United States to start growing amaranth for seed sales. It was a beautiful fall day when the amaranth was in full bloom. He had a variety that was kind of this deep maroon color and had a big field of it, just thousands and thousands of these six foot tall plants that each had a flower that was more than a foot long. It was a bright sunny blue day and it was just such a striking image you know just about as beautiful of a field as you could imagine and he talked about some of the potential uses of amaranth some of the nutritional qualities and i'd heard some about it before from professors at the university who had done a little work with it but that really had an impact on me and i ended up writing a short guide for other farmers to use uh, not long after that and uh, then later started doing research with it about 30 years ago and have just worked with it along with other kind of alternative crops for farmers like sunflowers and canola and buckwheat and millets. But amras has always been kind of my personal favorite to work with, even though it's not grown a whole lot in the United States right now. And in the meantime, i in recent years, worked on developing a couple varieties with amaranth. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So that's how I got exposed to amaranth, was that farmer field in Minnesota.
0: Very neat. Can you tell me a little bit about the history and the native range of amaranth?
1: Yeah, the grain amaranths that are used um, for food in the United States and around the world really come from Latin America. We think the main area of domestication was in Mexico, but there were probably some domestications of similar species of amaranth in South America, particularly the Andean region. Um, We know that amaranth was used in Mexico going back quite some time ago, at least a few thousand years ago, but it particularly reached a peak use um, when the Aztecs were At their peak of cultural influence in Mexico. So, around 500 years ago, when the Spanish conquistadors arrived, we kind of all heard those stories in grade school about the Spanish (laughs) conquistadors, and uh, amaranth was being used very widely in uh, that region of Mexico at that time when they arrived.
0: Fascinating. You mentioned that they have huge flower spikes. Can you tell me a little bit more about what the plant physiology is?
1: Yeah, amaranth is what we would call a, a broadleaf plant. Um, it's somewhat related to quinoa, kind of as a distant cousin. Um, so the grain types that we would grow in the United States will get, depending on the soil, anywhere from five to seven feet tall, but, but usually around six or seven feet tall. And the flowers um, will start growing depending on the, where you're at in the United States, like around early August. Each flowering head, what we'd call an inflorescence, has really thousands of tiny individual flowers so that when we look at a field of it, we see what we think are these flowers that are like a foot or more in height when they're fully developed and maybe six to 10 inches wide, but what what we're really seeing is these inflorescences that have within them thousands of tiny flowers. And each one of those tiny flowers becomes a tiny seed. So <laughs> when you see a single plant of amaranth, one of these flowering inflorescences may have several thousand seeds on that single plant, but they're each very tiny, like a millimeter in size and just weighing a single milligram. So it's kind of an interesting plant um, that has so many individual seeds on a single plant.
0: It's amazing. You specified grain amaranth, so is it also are other parts of the plant edible?
1: They are. Um, there are. There are different types of amaranth that represent different species. Kind of if you looked at it botanically, there's dozens of different amaranth species, but only a few of them are used for human food uh, on a consistent basis. So the grain amaranths really represent uh, three different species with two in particular being really common, and then there are what we would call the vegetable types that came out of, for the most part, the same region of Mexico and South America, but they've spread around the world as well. And at this point in time, the the vegetable amaras are really considered a cultural food in the Caribbean region and also in parts of Africa. So people that um, either are from the Caribbean or enjoy Caribbean food or markets, may find vegetable amaranths. We also see ornamental amaranths uh, that are pretty commonly sold at your local garden center. When you go in and buy flower packets, you'll find some of the ornamental amaranths like Love Slice Bleeding or Joseph Coates are two of the common generic names for flower varieties of amaranth that, that really look kind of different from the grain types that are much bigger plants, but they're all kind of members of the amaranth family.
0: Okay. How do they tend to differ in terms of their appearance other than height?
1: Well, the grain amaranths are, yeah, the grain amaranths are the biggest ones. Like I said, six to seven feet tall and on really good soils, they may be even bigger than that. But... Um, the the vegetable types um, there's a range of types that are used for vegetables, but they tend to be smaller plants, like two to three feet tall. Um, and then the ornamental ones are kind of highly variable. Love slice Bleeding is this one that has a typically kind of a crimson or a maroon flower that is what I would call pendulous. The the parts of the flower kind of lean over and and um, lay down a little bit, and those those plants are usually small, like a couple feet tall. There are other ornamental amaranths that are bigger. They may be four to six feet tall, depending on what species of amaranth it is. Some are grown for their colorful leaves, some for their colorful flowers, but really all of the amaranths, the grain type, the vegetable types, and just the straight ornamentals uh, are very attractive plants. They either have colors in their leaves, um, They may have like maroon or purplish spots on their leaves uh, or other leaf patterns, but many of them have uh, interesting flower colors. The most common flower color being kind of a maroon or crimson, but you also see orange flowering types. There are ones with more golden flowers. Some have just a straight green flower. A lot of the flowers can be Uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot of them, but some of them can kind of change color a little bit as they go through time. So of the two varieties that I developed, one of them is just a really bright crimson flower color that stays that same color all the time from the beginning of flowering till frost. And I have another one that starts out more green colored and then it gradually turns golden as it gets farther into the fall. So they they can change color depending on the variety.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. So... The variety is within the same species. But for the grain use and the ornamental and the leaf type, are they separate species or are there varieties within the species that can be used for grain or leaf?
1: Both. Um, so the grain the grain types, for those that are more botanically inclined, they the main two species are amaranth hypochondriacus and amaranth cruentus. Within the ornamental types, there are a few different species. And again, with the vegetables, Amaranth caudatus is one of the more common vegetable types. But uh, collectively, there are several different species that are available in commercial trade for people that want to try growing them for different uses. And I should add that the grain types, you can eat the leaves of the grain types. The two things I would point out if you were going to eat the leaves is that generally the, the newer, smaller leaves are the ones that are more desirable to eat. They're kind of more tender. And as they get, the leaves get bigger and older, they get a little tougher and more fibrous. So you can still eat them. The other thing you have to pay a little attention to is, depending on the soil conditions and weather conditions, any of the amaranths can accumulate uh, nitrates in the leaves. And it's usually not an issue if you're just eating a few leaves, but if you're going to eat a lot of amaranth consistently, (laughs) that's something that um, the grain amaranths are a little more likely to have happen in terms of accumulating higher level of nitrates than the vegetable types. So it's, it's kind of an uncommon issue. It's really maybe more of an issue with, with livestock than people, but it is still something to kind of, um, kind of monitor is, you know, how much of it you're, you're eating if it's the grain types. Again, the vegetable types, I wouldn't be too worried. And the other thing we can do is if we cook the leaves, that removes the problem. I'm referring to just eating the leaves raw. so
0: Oh, fascinating. And you said soil conditions plays into that. Is it more drought conditions that would cause that?
1: Drought can influence it. Sometimes with drought, the nitrates will be a little higher. And also just if you have a really high nitrogen in the soil, that can make it a little higher. Again, it's I don't want to overstate the problem because if you're just eating some newer small leaves and moderate quantities of them, even eating it fresh, you're unlikely to have a problem. But if you were collecting a lot of leaves off the plant, including mature leaves and eating a lot of them, then you might have slight potential for an issue, which can be easily overcome by just cooking it. So, Yeah. And again, that's more the grain type than the vegetable types. The vegetable types are not uh, very likely to have that issue. So.
0: Do the leaves have high levels of oxalic acid or oxalates?
1: You know, that hasn't been really well studied to my knowledge. Um, I don't think that's a big issue, but I don't have a lot of information on that. Okay.
0: So changing a little bit in direction, but sticking of course with (laughs) amaranth, what about growing conditions? What would you say would be ideal growing conditions if you want to bring it into your garden?
1: Well, one of the things I like about amaranth is it's a really widely adapted plant, even though you might think, oh, gee, Mexico, that's kind of a warm, more <laughs> tropical or <laughs> much warmer environment. Um, I've seen amaranth grown all over the United States. I've seen it grown in Canada. Um, it's grown on every continent outside of Antarctica. Um, it's a really one of our more widely adapted annual grain and vegetable plants. It likes, tends to like somewhat drier conditions or at least is tolerant of them, but it can grow in higher rainfall conditions. I lived in Maryland for a few years and grew it quite well out there. Where I live in Missouri, we get about 37 to 38 inches of rain a year on average, but I've grown amaranth in years where we had a lot of rain, like 55 inches of rain, and it still survives that. So it's pretty adaptable. And like I said, I've seen it grown in the West in much lower rainfall areas that maybe get 14 inches of rain. So the rainfall is not real critical. It, it is a crop that is tolerant of hot conditions, but as I mentioned, it can be grown as far North as Canada. The main thing we have to watch is um, if we're trying to harvest it for seed, the, the farther North you go, you just need to get it started pretty quickly when the soils are warm enough so that it has time to mature before frost, like if you were up in Canada. But in Missouri, we have a long enough growing season. Like I can plant it in July and still get a crop off of it. So it's um, flexible for the area I'm at. As far as soil conditions, um, it's pretty tolerant of different soils. I've, I've grown it in heavy clay soils. I've grown it in lighter textured soils. It would not be one that would probably really like uh, extremely sandy soil, but I have tried doing that one year in particular. had it in a sandier soil and was able to grow it, but you're going to obviously need to water a little bit in that situation. So yeah, it's pretty pretty adaptable from a growing condition standpoint.
0: You mentioned that in Canada, there might be some challenges. I'm in Canada and I've definitely had some that have matured, even self-seeded. Do you think that it's the cultivar selection or developing cultivars that would be able to reach full maturity within a, the growing season?
1: There are differences in the maturity of different varieties. Um, if you're growing it as a grain, there's not a lot on the market is the challenge. So some of the ones that are available, like if you look at heritage seed catalogs, they'll have some different amaras that people buy for their garden. And uh, I think any of them are fine to try. But some of them are coming straight out of Mexico where they have a very long growing season. And so they're not as adapted for a shorter growing area. The, the two varieties i develop developed are, are what I would call kind of mid-season types. I've seen shorter season types that I've grown here in Missouri. They're just not widely available right now. Unfortunately, these are ones that are more experimental breeding lines. But having said all that, one of the things about amaranth is it has what we call an indeterminate flowering pattern, which means that it produces seed over a several week period. I said earlier that the first flowers in my area start showing up in early August. So what'll happen is by that point the plant will typically be about oh four to five feet tall, depending on the year, and there'll be a very tiny flower bud that starts to grow at the very top of the plant. And at first it'll just be like a half inch in size, and then over the next few days it'll get to be an inch or two in size, and over a period of a few weeks it'll keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually, depending on uh, the growing conditions, those inflorescences will get to be a foot or more tall sometimes even 18 inches in size so they they grow for an extended period but what happens to those individual flowers is the very those very first little flowers that appear at the beginning of August they're pollinating themselves and producing seed, starting to grow seed pretty quickly. And then other flowers every day, there's like more flowers developing, more flowers pollinating. So it's pollinating itself over a several week period. Um, Seeds start to develop and mature over a several week period. So even in a shorter growing area like Canada, you're going to get some seed development. You just may not get as much as you were in a longer growing season because those flowers have more time to keep developing and producing more seed but it makes it that's part of what makes it adaptable is that very extended flowering period.
0: You mentioned that you have developed a few varieties. Firstly, is amaranth self-pollinating? And if so, how do you go about doing a breeding project to develop cultivars for your region?
1: Yeah. So the, the grain amaranth types, um, which are the ones I'm most familiar with how to breed, they, and I think this would be true of the other types too, like the vegetable and ornamental types, they're what we would call highly self-pollinated. That, that means that normally they're pollinating, each flower is pollinating itself, but they can be cross-pollinated if you introduce pollen from an adjacent plant. So the simple way to like breed, cross two varieties together is just plant them next to each other. And then when they're starting to flower, you put them inside of both flowering heads in a paper bag. And every few days you kind of go shake the bag a little bit. So whatever pollen's in there will float around. So wind can pollinate the the plants. I've seen honeybees visiting um, amaranth, and they obviously can spread pollen. So it's not a 100% self-pollinated but it's it primarily self-pollinated. But it still uh, is compatible with you know being pollinated by a different plant. And that, that makes it pretty easy to, um, to have two parents and, and breed for new varieties.
0: How do you know when the seeds are mature?
1: Well, they are interesting because um, it's not quite like maybe a bigger, if you think of something like a garden pea, you see that pea pods kind of flat at the beginning, and then gradually that pea pod gets plumper and plumper as the pea, but then it keeps growing. And if you're eating it fresh, you know, you kind of harvest it as soon as the seed pods are plump. Or if you want to keep the seeds to grow, you need to wait till that seed pod turns nice and brown later on. Well, AMRS kind of different because the, the flowering heads, uh, one of the things I enjoy is they just keep flowering and flowering and flowering. I mean, they're very colorful, like I said, and they start flowering in my area in early uh, August and they keep flowering till frost, which for us is the end of October. So there's almost a three month flowering period, which is really amazing for a grain crop. Normally, like if I think of soybeans, they'll flower for a week and then the flower turns into a soybean pod and you never see the flowers again, right? but the seeds are developing while you're still seeing those flowers on the plant. An individual seed to tell if it's mature to harvest it for future planting, uh, it's a little tricky. You have to, what I like to look for is the seeds kind of start out what I would call more translucent looking. They have kind of a higher gloss to them because the starch inside them is is more uh, liquid in nature. And then as the seed is maturing the starch becomes more granular and the seed appearance changes from kind of that glossy or translucent appearance to more of a opaque appearance and that to me is an indicator that the seeds getting mature but because on an individual plant there's seeds at all stages of development if you take a handful of seed from that plant you'll get some that are have that glossy appearance and some that are more translucent so but that that's kind of an indicator of what's happening. The other thing you can kind of just do, typically the way farmers deal with it, is they wait for frost to kill the plants entirely, and then they're going to come in and harvest it. And at that point of the season, many of the seeds will be mature enough that they can grow again the next year.
0: Okay. How do you go about removing the seeds from the seed head?
1: Well, um, I wrote a book about Amaranth called Amaranth, an Ancient Grain and Exceptionally Nutritious Food, and I go into that in detail because there are people that want to grow it in their garden, and that's one method, and then there are people growing it on farms where they have a 40-acre field, and they're using the same type of combine harvester that somebody that's harvesting soybeans or wheat might be using, and that's, of course, a whole different system than harvesting it by hand. But let me just talk about harvesting it by hand because that's probably the bigger part of your audience. Um, The simple thing to do is just take like a five-gallon bucket. When you're ready to harvest the seed, um, I take a pair of like pruning shears and cut off the flowering head like maybe six or 12 inches below the flowers. So just cut the stalk off. And then I turn that head upside down into the bucket and just sort of bang it on the inside of the bucket. And if I do that, um, particularly after a frost has happened, like Not immediately after frost, because the first day or two after the frost, the frost will have disrupted the cellular tissue in the flowering head and it'll be kind of damp. But once that that flowering head has started to dry out a few days after frost, if you've had some good drying weather, then the seeds start to become more loose in the flowering head and you can bang it inside that bucket and a lot of them will fall out, not all of them. Now, if it hasn't frosted, um, like in Missouri, I often end up harvesting some or all of my crop before frost, depending on the year. It, it'll still fall out if I bang it in the bucket, but not as many of the seed because they're more firmly attached to the flowering inflorescent structure. So that's that's a simple way to harvest the seed. And if you just want to get a little bit, like to replant, or you know, maybe if you grow a 10 by 10 foot patch of it and you want to get enough to use in baking a loaf of bread that's that's kind of the fast way to harvest it is just bang some of it inside a bucket or you can use a larger container for that matter. What is a more thorough way to get the seed out is I put on a pair of gloves because as the amaranth flowers dry down a little bit of a prickly nature to them, there are what you might call awns in there, A-W-N-S, that Uh, can kind of stick just a little bit in your fingers. And it's not terribly painful, but it's just kind of irritating. And by the way, when it's clear and flowering, that doesn't happen like if I cut them just as ornamental flowers. But this is when the the seed is drying down. So I wear a pair of leather gloves and I just rub that grain head uh, between the gloves over a bucket or a basket. And uh, then I can more thoroughly get a higher percentage of the seed out. Now, regardless of whether I've just simply banged the seed head in a bucket or done that process of rubbing it in between gloved hands, I'm going to have more than just the seed in the bucket or basket. I'm going to have some other uh, flower parts in there. And I need to separate those before I actually either keep the seed stored for planting or use it for food use. So it's kind of the age-old method of screening and winnowing. I take a couple of different size screens and pass it through those a couple of times to get rid of some of the bigger pieces of non-seed material. And then I do uh, winnowing. And for people not familiar with winnowing, we've done this as humans for thousands of years with a variety of grains, but it's simply turning the seed back and forth between two containers like baskets or buckets when there's a breeze, or if you don't Don't have a breeze. Bring a fan outside or in your garage to do this. And you let the the breeze or the fan blow away the lighter material that's mixed in with the seed. So these are little tiny flower parts that will just blow away. The seed has enough density that it'll, when you turn one bucket over into the other, it'll fall straight down. Now there's a little bit of trial and error to it. If you have a really windy day or a really strong fan, <laughs> you have to be careful because it can start blowing the seed all over the place. you may have to move back a little farther or the biggest problem I've had is on it if it's a windy day where the wind is kind of swirling around and changing speeds, that can make it a little more challenging. So I usually try to use a bigger Container like a, a big clear plastic uh, tote box or something where there's more room for the seed to blow a little bit. But as you're pouring it, you can see the lighter chaff or flower parts blowing away, and you'll see the seed falling approximately straight down into the bucket below is, is the idea. So and you do that several times. You can't just do it once because you won't get all the chaff or foreign material out. You I usually do it like at least a half a dozen times. And uh, by that point, you should be getting fairly clean seed. It's hard to get everything out of there other than the seed, but you can get a lot of it out and enough that it can be safely stored for either food use or for replanting the next year. And then if you are saving it for planting, you want to store it in no warmer than like um, 70-degree conditions, or you can put it in your refrigerator. I would not put it in a freezer. But you can put it in your refrigerator and store it that way or just store it in a, a room that, that stays uh, climate controlled.
0: What does it taste like?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. If you ask different people what they think about Amaranth taste, uh, the people that like it right away will usually describe it as having kind of a nutty flavor. Uh, the people that are more like, hmm, that's different, They'll they'll say maybe it's earthy and I'm kind of a little bit of a picky eater, my wife would tell you. And when I first started eating it some, I thought, well, this has kind of got a strong flavor to it. So if you're just eating something made entirely of like amaranth flour alone, it and you're not used to eating it, I think you would notice that it tastes different than wheat flour or oat flour. On the other hand, most amaranth products sold in the marketplace today are primarily other flours with a little bit of amaranth mixed in. And when it's just like five or 10% of the ingredient, you're never going to taste the amaranth. It's not that strongly flavored. Or if you're using it yourself, like one thing I occasionally do with it is I'll take half wheat flour, and half amaranth flour for a regular chocolate chip cookie recipe. The chocolate is a much stronger flavor and will mask any taste of the amaranth you might have gotten. Now, the amaranth flour has a slightly different texture to it, and you'll notice the cookie has a slightly different texture or consistency than one made just with wheat flour, but for the most part, it's going to taste pretty much like a regular chocolate chip cookie. Same thing if a loaf of bread, if you've got other flavors in there like molasses or you're adding sunflower seeds or other things may overpower the taste of the amaranth so you don't notice it. Um, I've had the equivalent of like cheese puffs that were made from amaranth instead of Uh, Wheat flour or other flours and the cheese flavoring you don't really notice the amaranth taste because of the cheese flavoring so so it's got a flavor to it, but um, Most people find it acceptable, uh, especially when it's mixed with other ingredients
0: And some of the benefits of eating it I suppose for people who are gluten intolerant but it also has a lot of nutritional benefits can you tell me what some of those might be?
1: That's right, yes. Yeah, so the amaranth nutritional benefits are a really big driving force in why you see it um, in like the health aisle of grocery stores or in certain food products. Um, and I think in the future we're gonna see more use of amaranth as a healthy food source, right? In the last 15 or 20 years we've had an explosion of interest in quinoa for some of the same nutritional characteristics if you and i do this in my book i compare quinoa and amorya side by side they're pretty similar in most nutritional characteristics they both have relatively good protein and then when we talk about protein one of the things we look at with foods is the balance of the eight essential amino acids so as humans there are a lot of different amino acids that make up protein. There are eight that are essential to our bodies. And if we look at like drinking human milk or cow's milk, those are very well balanced in the amino acids that we need. In other words, we get them at the right ratio for our body to take full advantage of that protein. Now, if we eat something like corn, well, corn still has those eight essential amino acids, but it is very deficient in one of them, which is lysine. So if you're only eating a corn-based diet, and this has happened with people in different parts of the world, particularly in Africa, uh, where corn is not native, but was introduced by Europeans, uh, they can get nutritional deficiencies. They're getting enough calories from the corn, or what they would call maize, but they're not getting enough lysine as one of the eight essential amino acids to take full advantage of that protein. So... um, even though there's a certain amount of protein in the corn a lot of it just ends up not being used by our body if we're just eating corn as our main food source so historically in mexico what happened and people didn't necessarily know this but they just you know found that their bodies responded well to the diet was they mixed they had a diet that was beans and corn together and we think of mexican food today often having either black beans or refried red beans in with a corn tortilla. Well, when you put those two together, the, the beans are higher in lysine. Now they have their own amino acid deficiency. Tryptophan is one of them. And, but when you put the two crops together, you overcome most of that deficiency. So that's why a corn diet in combination with beans is much better than eating just corn alone, which has happened in parts of Africa. So back to the amaranth, uh, amaranth is really well balanced in the amino acid profile. It's very similar to milk and quinoa is almost the same. So both of those are very unique grains in having an amino acid profile similar to milk. So that's part of the reason that they're very nutritious as grains, but that's not the whole story. They're also good in a lot of other things. And when you look at in um, the United States, and this is probably true in Canada there are Food labeling system and what things are usually listed as key nutritional ingredients, different vitamins, iron, zinc, and so on. Uh, Amaranth tends to be quite good in those. And you look at all the different grains that we eat, uh, amaranth is the highest grain for six of the 20 or so things that in the United States are listed as key nutritional ingredients. And I think the next highest is buckwheat at four. Um, So it's, it's, it's kind of remarkable in that it's uniquely high in a lot of different nutritional characteristics. And uh, that's why I've been motivated to keep working with it uh, because I see it as a very nutritional, widely adapted food source and why other people have done research and development with it as well.
0: What sort of research is being done? Are you involved in the current research?
1: Well, over the years, I've done a pretty wide range of research with it, kind of both how to grow it and understanding the biology of it more. More recently, the main thing I've done with it is the variety development. And um, with a few other people, there's not a whole lot of amaranth research. And united states and canada but there's a handful of us that uh, work with it and part of the the question is how do we get a further understanding of how to best use the amaranth for different food uses like you know if you're going to use it in a nutrition bar granola bar um, what's the best way to use it there if you're using in breakfast cereals or breads what's the best way to use it so i don't do food science research myself but i Um, sometimes collaborate with with food scientists that are looking at amaranth. So it's one of these crops that has had a very modest amount of research, but I think if we had additional research, we could learn a lot more. And I'll just give you an example. There was a study looking at what sorts of plant-based dyes work best in solar panels. You know, we all have hopes that we can get more solar energy going forward. Well, amaranth These colorful plant heads are a good source of plant-based dyes to provide color. And there was a single study that found amaranth was an excellent source of dyes for solar cells, but it never went anywhere because it was just a, a single study. But I think... Anytime we're looking at a, a plant that's kind of underutilized, if we have additional research, we can gain new insights into the best ways to use them. And any of our main food plants we, we use in an amazing number of ways, like soybeans are used in literally over 100 different commercial ways, the same with corn and wheat. Uh, I think if we knew more about amaranth, we'd have a better understanding of the best ways to use it uh, to meet some of the needs we have in society.
0: Absolutely. So how can people find, say, some of the varieties that you've developed or how can people find grain cultivars to grow at home?
1: Yeah, if they want to grow some at home, there are several seed companies that sell amaranth varieties, both the vegetable types and the grain types. They may not even call them grain types, but if they describe them for seed harvest, that's what they're talking about. Particularly companies that specialize in heirloom seed sales tend to be ones that have amaranth flowers. But uh, Johnny Selected Seed is one, Select Seeds, uh, Baker Creek Seed is another one. Um, I've seen several different catalogs that that have them. and I list some of those in, in my book, some of the seed sources. But... Um, I would say if you've got a couple favorite seed companies, just look and see if they have some type of amaranth. Now, the two varieties that I've developed, uh, we are probably just going to be this coming winter getting some of those on the market because we've been uh, going through the process of increasing the seed supply. Whenever you develop a new variety, when you first uh, say, okay, this variety has got some traits that are worth distributing, you at that point as a plant breeder have a very small amount of seed. So then you have to go through a, a few to several year period of uh, each year growing more of the seed so that you have a big enough supply to distribute it. So that's what's been happening the last few years is just growing more of that seed and we hope to have enough to start distributing it more widely.
0: And how can people find your book?
1: Uh, my book is available through um, a lot of the online places that sell books like Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Again, it's called Amaranth, an Ancient Grain and Exceptionally Nutritious Food. And it was I wrote it about three years ago for a general audience. So it goes into the nutrition and how to grow amaranth, some of the biology of the plant, and some of the potential uses. The part that I probably enjoyed writing the most was some of the history of amaranth, part of which I knew, but I kind of dug into that a little deeper. And it, it's really kind of fascinating to read about this crop that was used so widely at the time of the Aztecs. We think it was the second most important food uh, to the Aztecs following corn, which was even more important. But when the conquistadors came in and defeated the Aztec um, civilization, the whole Montezuma and Cortez thing, they really had the intent of suppressing the Aztec culture. And amaranth, even though it was kind of number two to corn, from what we know was very important in Aztec culture and religion, perhaps because of its very colorful nature. They even did things where they would take the uh, grain and either make the equivalent of our Rice Krispie bars, or they would make animal figures out of uh, popped amaranth mixed with honey into little figurines, or they would, I think, sometimes take the ground flour and make the equivalent of Play-Doh figures with it. So they would make these little figurines out of the amaranth flower uh, or popped grain for their religious ceremonies. Probably they had the cut flowers because they were so beautiful as part of their ceremonies. So anyway, it seems from what historical information we have that the Spanish conquistadors Uh, forbid the Aztec people to continue to grow the amaranth. They did not do that from what we know with corn. They allowed them to continue growing corn. But amaranth sort of disappeared from human history for hundreds of years. And it, it did kind of gradually make its way around the world in the 1800s in particular, first as an ornamental later as a food plant showing up in Africa and India, some other places, because it does have all these desirable characteristics. But in the meantime, in Mexico, there were just a handful of farmers here and there still growing it, it had kind of been forgotten about. And then in the 1970s, kind of a visionary person named Robert Rodale, who was a publisher of Organic Gardening and Runner's World and a whole bunch of magazines and books, took uh, some of his wealth and invested in Amaranth to kind of rediscover it, do plant breeding with it, do other research on it. And this was like starting in the 1970s and going into the 80s. Unfortunately, he died um, around the time he was 60 in an automobile accident in Russia when he was over there kind of promoting sustainable or regenerative agriculture. And after he died, the Rodale Institute stopped um, investing in Amram. So that was a big setback. But there's been enough interest and research in it that it's kind of continued to go forward. And um, I think it has a very promising future, which is something I talk quite a bit about in the book.
0: Well, that's fascinating. And thank you very much for joining me today. If there's anything else that you want to add, and also if you have any links for me, let me know and I'll put them into the into the show notes.
1: Sure. I guess the only other thing I would say is you can find Amaranth food products um, in most grocery stores. And uh, again, you'll usually find it as a part of breakfast cereals, breads, uh, granola bars, multigrain breads. So try it out. Um, Grow a few of the plants as flowers. It's a fun plant to grow, pretty easy to grow. And again, there's a lot of diversity to work with. And there is a nonprofit organization called the Amaranth Institute that has additional information. So I'll send you the link for that.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. You bet. Thanks for listening. As mentioned, the links are in the show notes. If you have any questions or comments, or you just want to connect, head over to CarmenPorter.com.